to you. As we prepare to start, I just want to um, introduce a new series that we're getting ready to start as a church, and it's just called Pillars. So through the course of the next four weeks, what's going to take place um, is that y'all are going to hear from all four of the pastors here at the church, and we're each just, just going to share one thing that's on our heart. Um, through the course of the past year, I've gotten a chance to uh, uh, travel out of the country twice. And one of the things that's impacted me the most as I've gone um, is just how old things are. Um, so we were in Scotland uh, May of this year, and we walked by this pub. And this pub had been there since 1390, right? We saw castles. We saw all of these spots. And what we found is that all of these things, though they're old, they, they just kind of stand firm. There's these pillars that are in the ground. And so through the course of the next four weeks, we want to take time and just talk about things that are basic to Christianity, things that regardless of what our lives look like come years from now, these are things that are still going to stand. So um, you'll hear that from me, from Pastor Richard next week trip, the third week, and then uh, Pastor Mo in the fourth week. So pray with me and we'll start in our time today. Father, we come to you right now and we know that you don't hear us because of our many words. Um, and we're grateful because some, sometimes we have a tendency to put our foot in our mouths, Father. Um, so we're grateful that we can be brief and concise and prayers as short as God help me speak volumes. And so I pray that we would be the type of the those that we would be those that constantly cry out to you for help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Weight of Glory, where he reflects on the glory of Christianity and all of what God has done in the world. And he talks about this unique temptation that those of us that are Christian have. And here's the temptation that he brings out. Once we put our trust in Christ, once we turn from our sins, once we're sure that salvation has been provided to us and we don't have an, an, anything in the world to fear. His concern is that you and I are tempted to live the Christian life as those that are reluctant taxpayers. So he's like, there's a type of person that pays taxes. They know that it's a good thing that they pay it. They know that they have to. They're honest in their dealings, but they don't want to pay a penny more than they earn or than they owe. And if they look at that tax bill at the end of the year and it seems like it's too much, they want to go back and make sure that they don't have to pay more than they owe. And his thing is the temptation for Christianity is the same way. We can tend to view the Christian life like that. We know that God wants us to do things with our lives. We know that he wants us to give our time, our money, our talents. We know that he wants to direct the course of our lives. But when we stumble across places where it seems like he may want too much of us, we double, triple check to make sure that we really don't have to give that much. And what I've found is that this is no truer, it's no more clear and apparent in the way that you and I view prayer. And when I say prayer, I don't mean how we talk about prayer. I mean how we treat prayer. 
all of us in here can say nice words and nice things about the concept of prayer. But we really start to get hit hard when we hear how saints of the past have talked about prayer. And so I'm going to read a few uh, quotes for us to work that guilt nice on up here. It starts up and it says this. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. You are no Christian if you do not pray. A prayerless soul is a Christless soul. Prayer is the indispensable mark of the true child of God. They want to know whether you are actually acquainted with the throne of grace. Whether you can speak to God as well as speak about God. Do you wish to find out whether you are a true Christian? Then rest assured that my question is of the utmost importance. Do you pray? This I do pray that not praying or this I do say that not praying is a clear proof that a man is not yet a true Christian. He cannot really feel his sins. He cannot love God. He cannot feel himself a debtor to Christ. He cannot long after holiness. He cannot desire heaven. He has yet to be born again. He has yet to be made a new creature. He may boast confidently of election, grace, faith, hope, and knowledge, and deceive ignorant people, but you may rest assured It is all vain talk if he does not pray. Feel guilty yet? I've got one more, and this one is the the best one. It says this. So we come to one of the crying evils of these times, maybe of all times, little or no praying. Of these two, perhaps little praying is worse than no praying. Little praying is a kind of make-believe, a kind of ointment for the conscience, a charade and a and a delusion. The little estimate we put on prayer is evident from the little time that we give to it. Now, here's what I want you to know. As you look at the Bible, and as you look at Jesus talking about prayer, he never does it to make us feel guilty, right? Guilt is part of it. We read these things and we feel guilty because we don't pray as much. We feel beat up. But as Jesus talks about prayer, it's never to beat us up. It's always to build us up. And that's what we want to do here in the course of the next four weeks. We're not trying to discourage anybody towards faithfulness to Christ. It doesn't work like that. We want to encourage you and show you that prayer is something that God invites us all into. Jesus is probably the most encouraging when he talks about prayer. So if you would turn in your Bible with me to Matthew chapter six, and we'll start at verse five. Matthew six comes right in the heart of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably the most famous sermon to be preached. Jesus is preaching to a few thousand folks in chapter five. Jesus spends his time and he talks all about what Christianity looks like this way between me and you, the way that we should act. We, we shouldn't lust after one another. We shouldn't seek revenge. And he just talks about what life looks like between people. Matthew chapter six is all about what life looks like between you and God. And as he starts off and talks about prayer, I think he's going to give us a grid, a way to think 
through it, and it's going to be an encouraging invitation for us to pray. Let's start at verse 5. Verse 5 says this. And when you pray, I love how he starts off with that, and when you pray. It's a foregone conclusion. Christians pray. Relationship is all about communication. God speaks to us primarily through his word. And do you know how we speak to God? Prayer. If there is no, com- co- if there is no communication, there is no relationship. So as Jesus starts off, it's a foregone conclusion that Christians pray. And he starts off and he contrasts a few things. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrite. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Two times in that first thing, the very first thing we see is this reward. As Jesus talks about prayer, he doesn't just say it as this is an obligation that you and I have to do. He say, no, there is an incentive. There is actually a reward. So many times when we look and talk about how God sees what's done in the dark, that's done to or that's done or said or communicated in such a way as to scare kids not to steal. Don't steal. God sees you. Jesus right here says, no, no, listen, as you pray, know that when you're praying, God sees you and he's going to reward you. So don't spend your time trying to get a reward from people that won't really amount to anything. As you pray, know that there is an incentive that you have a God that actually rewards prayer. Do you believe that? Does your prayer life actually reflect the fact that you believe that God has a reward for those that come to him in a prayer? As Jesus starts off and talks about prayer, he doesn't want you to feel guilty. This is not him saying, go and pick a switch from the tree. I'm going to whip you with it until you start praying. This is him saying, no, look, 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 you're missing out on the fact that God actually wants to reward you, that he has Something for those that sit and pray. And then he goes on. Verse 7. He says this. And when you pray. Once again, it's a foregone conclusion. Christians pray. And when you pray. Listen. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him very next thing that he goes on is he says this, hey, don't worry about it being so long. Charles Spurgeon says this, prayers are not measured by length, but by strength. So the biggest objection that so many of us have, yeah, I would pray more, but I just don't have the time. Jesus says, it doesn't take much time. You don't have to spend lots of time. Don't think that you're going to be heard by God because of your many words. He says, no, prayers are measured by the strength and not by the length. So what that means is this. 
is that you have the time. He does this so that nobody has an excuse not to pray, but that everybody is encouraged to pray, to maximize that time. With your spouses, with your kids, with strangers that you meet on the street, with anybody that comes to you, anytime that you feel discouraged or downtrodden and you don't have time to think, he's saying at least you have time to pray because God is not putting a time limit. The God who created the world, who has all the time in the world to hear about every one of your problems in depth is telling you, don't feel like you have to start and it has to be this marathon. Just start small. We're not heard because of our many words. And then verse 9, he starts off and he says these words. Pray then like this. That word pray is an imperative. It's a command. It's not just a foregone conclusion that Christians pray. It's something that God himself has commanded us to do. And I want you to hear this. Being commanded to do this is not just an obligation. It's the best thing for you. If you only pray when you feel like it, you're never going to pray a whole lot. And you're not going to pray in the times when you need prayer the most. Uh, Chandra and I were at a house this past week, and we had a friend, Shannon, who's here, and she's a nurse. And she asked us, when was the last time you've been to the doctor? And we said, well, I don't go to the doctor. I'm healthy. I feel strong. And then she just goes and lists off all of these things that could be wrong with you and kill you that you won't feel. <laughs> Needless to say, we made an appointment to go to the doctor. God's commands are good for us because they put us in a place where even if we don't feel what's wrong with us, he prepares us to get what it is that we need from him. So. Here's the beauty of what takes place. The Lord's Prayer, what we're getting ready to read through, is probably the most famous prayer in all of the world. You don't have to be a Christian to be able to recite this from scratch. But the charge that he gives is this. Listen, so much truth, so much, so much goodness can be hidden behind religious phrases. You know, in all of the Gospels, there's one time, and it comes in Luke, where Jesus' disciples ask them, teach me to do something. And do you know what it is? Teach us to pray. The one time that they ask him to teach them is to pray because I think they saw something in the way that he prayed and what took place that they really wanted to learn that. And so here's what takes place. We're going to spend our time and we're going to go through this. You could really spend weeks on each line. So we're going to do our best to, uh, I'm going to do my best to try to give you one phrase that kind of highlights this whole thing and then two ways that we pray. I'll start off and I'll read first and I'll give you the phrase. Verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think that the one thing that we see here is this. In prayer, we long for God's presence before his possessions. In prayer, we long for God's presence, not just before, but more than his possessions. It's interesting when Jesus starts to teach them how to pray, he gives them a priority and not a process. When like, don't think of this in terms of you trying to teach a kid how to ask to get things. My nephew Jackson is two years old um, and he came over to our house on Thanksgiving and maybe since since his first birthday, um, he had cake. Richard made an amazing cake. And he he had cake. Well, since he's been back, the very first words that he says as he comes through that door is cake, cake. And so we're trying to teach him. No, 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 no. Jackson, it's not just cake. Right. It's cake, please. So Jackson comes. He says, cake. We say, what do you say? Cake, please. And he knows if I have the right process, then I'll get what I want. That's not what Jesus does right here. It's not about process. It's not ask what you want and then throw in Christ's name on the end and you'll get what you want. Jesus spends his time here and he doesn't just teach them or teach us how to ask, but he tries to teach us what it is that we should ask for. And that's two completely different things. In prayer, we long for God's presence before his possessions. And so there's two things that we work through. One, God's presence. And two, God's possessions. Verses 9 and 10 says this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The very first thing that we long for is God's presence and God's will. If you look at verse 9 and verse 10, do you know what you're not going to find there? Me, my, our, and us. Every pronoun is directed Godward. You, yours, this. So the very first thing is we come and pray. We are reminded that our will is not supreme. Prayer is not me following the process to get what I want. Prayer is first and foremost longing for God himself. So he starts off with these two words, our father. One thing that you'll see in the Lord's prayer is that everywhere else in the sermon on the mount, as Jesus tells people what to do, he's going to use these first person pronouns. So you don't lust. You don't lie. You tell the truth. But then when he starts to teach us how to pray, none of the pronouns here are singular. All of them are plural. So even though we pray by ourselves at times, we're not to pray just for ourselves. Every time we pray, we're constantly to be drawn into the fact that God is not just my father. He is our father. 
we're constantly to be drawn into the fact that when we pray and when we go before God, we reject this American Western version of Christianity that says that the most important thing is about how I relate to God. That's just not true. Every time we pray, we are to involve other people and be reminded that we are a part of a family. Prayer begins with embracing relationships. Not just the fact that God is our father, but we're part of a big family with other brothers and sisters. To call God father, as we talked about last week, is something that's rare. Up until this point, there's only five prayers in the Bible that are addressed to God as father. So this is not something that that those that sat there, that they sat and they heard and were like, yeah, of course we would uh, address God like that. This is Jesus saying that as you come to God, the most important thing that we have to know is that God is our father. Jesus, as we talked about last week, provides us access to God. Apart from Jesus, God is not our father. God is a judge that will judge all of our sins with an impartial standard. But because of what Jesus did, God's perfect son, all of us that have repented of our sins and put our trust in the fact that Jesus died for us and raised for us, not just to keep us from harm, but to bring us into God's family, we can acknowledge this. We come to God in prayer. We address him as a father. And do you know what that does? It keeps us bold in our request, especially at times when our inadequacy is brought right in front of us. It's easy for us to become timid in the way that we approach God as we look back and we think of who we are. As Jesus tells us how to pray, he tells us to take our eyes off of who we are and to look at God, our father. At Blueprint Church, I was privileged to be on staff and work with two guys um, who had autistic sons. And I've been around a lot of great fathers, but I was most impacted by watching those two guys. To see the way that they loved their sons. Their sons who the rest of the world would look and see is an inconvenience. Their sons who the rest of the world would look and see all the things that are wrong with them. Their sons who the rest of the world would see their inadequacies. I saw these guys, in spite of what went on in the lives of their sons, love them, care for them well, provide for, for their needs. And when we take a step back and are reminded of how broken we are, we see what a privilege it is to be able to look and to call God Father and to know that his willingness to meet our requests is not based on how well you and I perform so we don't have to be timid in the things that we ask of God. J.I. Packer says this, Father is the litmus test of how well somebody understands Christianity. If God as Father is not the thought that prompts and controls your worship or your prayers and outlook on life, then he says it means that you haven't really understood Christianity 
very well. God is our father. We have nothing to fear as we approach him. So do you know what that means? It means that Christians, that you and I, those of us that have put our faith and trust in Christ, we should be the most celebratory people on the planet. There should be nobody that outdoes us in thanksgiving, not just the one day per year, but every day of the year to be reminded That every time that we go to God in prayer, we don't go to somebody that we have to rouse up or convince him to incline his ear towards us. But we go to somebody that has gone through great lengths to provide for each and every one of our needs. It should remind us that this father, everything that goes on in our lives, every tragedy, every bit of depression, every loss of a loved one, every loss of a job, Every failed friendship or marriage, all of it, it's gone through God's hands. And he wouldn't give us an ounce more than he thought was absolutely necessary to refine us. So prolonged prayers, like Charles Spurgeon says, they're the most sweetest when they're answered. They're like ripened fruit. It may stay on the vine a long time, but you're sure that when it comes off and when our father really does what he says that he would, oh, it'll be sweet. So he starts off and says, our father. And then those next two words, in heaven. Listen, when the Bible talks about heaven, it doesn't just talk about a place. It's a position. Psalms 115 says this, God is in heaven the heavens, and he does what he pleases. Heaven is meant not just to talk about where God is, but the power that he has, the same way that we refer to the White House, not just as a place, but the person that's there. It it refers to the type of control that they have. And so here's the beauty. Jesus starts off this prayer and he helps us see this. That God is as compassionate as he is capable. That God has inclined our hearts to pray and he's going to hear us. So the question begs itself. If you had the ear of the most powerful being to ever exist on the face of the earth. And he said that you could boldly ask of him anything because he's your father. What would you ask for? What would you ask for? Money? Wealth? Riches? The problems in your world to be solved? This is why Jesus gives us this prayer. Because after telling us that great truth... He wants to not just control the process, but the priorities. Look at what he tells us to ask for. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What God does is he brings all this power very, very close to us. And he says, I want you to know that as you pray, the most important thing is not your world, 
but it's his world. The most important thing is not just the things that go on in your life. The most important thing is that we pray and we long for God's presence, not just in our own lives, but in the world that we live in. First thing, God, cause your name to be honored. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come. It's easy for those of us right now who live in the states that are frustrated with the way that things have gone to reflect on the fact that This is not all that I hoped that it would be. But one thing that you find out as you travel and as you go across the rest of the world, there are very few people that find themselves living in earthly kingdoms that are saying, this is all that I hoped it would be. Do you know the thing that unites us as Christians? The fact that we're all disappointed at any given time with what goes on in the world, with the kingdoms that we find ourselves in. But here's what unites us as people. We spend our time trying to build little kingdoms of our own. We're discontent with what goes on out there, so we in our own strength try to fix it. We try to build the house of our dreams the marriage of our dreams, the friendships of our dreams. We spend our time trying to build these little kingdoms and we pray that God would come and bless this. And what Jesus is saying is that as we start and pray, the most important thing that we can pray is not for God to grant favor on the kingdom that I'm trying to build, but pray that God's kingdom would be built here on this earth. To look outside of the little worlds that we have and pray that God would do a work that only he can do not just for his kingdom to come on earth but he says this and pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven how is God's will done in in heaven joyfully instantaneously and without reservation our lives are constantly lived in the shadow of God's will We may do it, but we do things begrudgingly, delayed, and with complaining. So the very first thing that we pray for before we ask God for all of his things is we pray that God would make his presence so real in our lives and in our world that he causes his name to be honored. The beauty about all of these things that we're going to, that God's going to tell us to pray for is that all of those are his ideas. So we can be confident that he's going to bring these things to pass because it's not our ideas, but his. We start praying for God's presence and God's agenda primarily to remind us of this truth. And the truth is this. God is not a genie. The purpose of a genie, somebody that has all this power and is inclined to give you what you want. And his presence is only useful in so much as he grants you what you want. If anybody had a genie, you said, hey, I think I want a million dollars. And he says, I don't think that's a good idea. You're saying that's not your job. I just need you to give me what I want. If God were a genie, 
would your prayer life be better? Would you talk to him more or would you talk to him less? Nobody has a problem talking to a genie, talking to somebody that gives them what they want. Everybody has a problem with talking to somebody that's going to shape their priorities. Jesus encourages us to pray, tells us of a great reward that we have, and then he tells us what to ask for. Not to step on our hopes and dreams and our desires, but to fulfill them in a way that we never thought that he would. And the beauty of all of this is that when we come to God in prayer, we don't have to muster up the courage to do these things. This is not a list of things for you to do. This is not you saying in your own strength, do God's will instantaneously, joyfully and freely. It's saying, no, 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 no. There's a weakness that you have, but you have a father with all of this strength times that you feel weak, go to him and ask him to make these things true of you. Christians, that we long for God's presence before we long for his possessions. But the prayer, it doesn't stop there. He goes on and he talks about ways that we pray for God's provision. Look here at verse 11. It says this. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here's what I want you to see about praying for provision or the possessions that we need. As Jesus goes through this, there's three things that he tells us to pray for. Our present physical needs, past spiritual debts, and protection from future pitfalls. Very first one is this, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Listen, this is not praying for a meal before you eat it. This is starting the day realizing and praying, asking that God would grant you the things that you need for that day. To simply pray for meals is to take for granted or to think that God has an obligation to provide me with each meal. It's to spend our time thinking that we've earned this food that's right in front of us and we just need to pray to ask God to bless it. And Jesus reminds us that as we go to God, that we pray for him, we ask each day that he would provide us What we need, Proverbs 30, there's a prayer that says this, Lord, give me just what I need. Because God, if you give me too much, I'm going to act like I don't need you. If you don't give me enough, then I may steal and it would seem like I don't know you or care for you. But God, give me just what I need so that I'm constantly dependent and reminded that I'm sustained not by the work of my hands, but by what you provide. And do you know what we get as we do this? 
as we daily pray and ask for God to provide for our needs. And at the end of the day, when God does provide for our needs, all of those are just links in a chain where we're constantly reminded of the faithfulness of God. We don't spend our time taking for granted what God has provided. But there's something about praying and asking him to give us the things that we need. And to know that at the end of the day, God's going to provide those things. And do you know what that does? It frees us on our jobs from feeling as if my boss controls my fate. It frees us from feeling as if I may have to compromise just so that I can eat. No, 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 no. Your boss doesn't provide your funds. God does. And so at the end of the day, each or at, at, at the start of the day, each day, we pray that God would provide for our physical needs. But then he goes on and says this, and forgive us of our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. The thing that I love about this is that this comes right on the heels of praying for daily bread. So that we're reminded as often as we pray for bread, we're to be reminded of the fact that peace with God, it never comes through our performance, but it always comes through God's pardon, through a forgiveness of sins. And so as often as we pray that God would give us what we need to sustain us, we pray and we ask God to forgive us of our sin. We're reminded that the only reason that you and I have peace with God is not because we've earned it. It's because Jesus earned it for us. It's free of charge to us, but it was costly to him. And now we have peace with God because God granted us forgiveness. Do you know what praying for this daily does? It keeps us from requiring people that have offended us to pay a debt that we never had to pay. Do you know what not praying for this daily does? It can bring us to a place where we forget how gracious God is and we forget how flawed that we are. And it only takes a little bit of time before that seeps into the way that we treat people. But if we're the type of people that constantly pray for God to pardon us and to forgive us, then it seeps into and it affects the way that we treat people. So much so that a prayerful Christian is a peaceful Christian. Somebody that never holds anybody to pay a debt that God themselves didn't hold them to pay. The quickest way to move from anger to compassion is to find the people that have made you the most angry and pray. These plural pronouns, he's, he's praying, forgive us. These plural pronouns, praying, God, give us our daily bread. Do you know what that does if you find yourself praying that God would provide not just for you, but for those around you? When you have extra, you don't assume that it's for you. When you have extra, you assume, oh, God answered the prayer to give us the bread that we need.
by providing it for me. And he expects me to pass it out. It makes us generous people that cause God's name to be hallowed here in this world. And lastly, he says this, praying for future spiritual pitfalls. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not enough just to have what we need and just to be forgiven for our past debts. But he's saying, no, no, no. We spend our time praying that God would protect us from future pitfalls. Praying and asking God to deliver us reminds us that deliverance never comes by our own strength. But it's something that we constantly have to ask God for. I had the privilege of, uh, yeah, yeah, I took a trip a few weeks ago and I was with a guy on the trip and we got a chance just to talk and to share life and talk about how good God has been. And he told me, he talked about what his life was like prior to meeting Christ. Lived in New York, sold drugs, made a lot of money on that stuff to where he bought boats houses and all of this stuff. And then he says that he got to a point where um, somebody stole lots of money from him. And he said, man, you know, I started to go to church with this guy. I started to hear the gospel. I started to learn about the power of prayer. But he's like, I was so angry that he concocted a plan in his head to kill this guy that stole money. He said, I never killed anybody before, and so I had to think of how to dispose of the body. And I'm just telling this story so that you see how far he came from and how real prayer is. And so he says, so I went to a butcher, and I bought this big piece of meat, and I asked him to leave the bone in. Because I knew that if I did this, I would have to dispose of the body. And so he said, I started to cut through the meat to feel what it was like to cut through the bone and all the stuff that came back in my head about all the stuff that I learned in the church he's like it just flooded back in and he said I just sat back and I prayed God help me and he said at that moment he had this perspective and he saw himself in a jail cell with his arms out here saying man I can't believe I gave up my life just for this money. But then he saw himself on the outside of the jail cell saying, man, he stole all this money. I have to. And he said that picture was just clear as day. And he said that God used that to help him not to throw his life away. He got into a 12-step program. He gave up everything that he had. And now he's 15 years clean walking with the Lord all based on this short prayer. God help me. Sometimes with things like that, it's easy for us to sit back and to say, to to tend to doubt answered prayers, right? We pray for things and then God does it and we're like, yeah, God did it. But how would I know that God wasn't going to do that? And, And in ways, why should I pray? I'm not really sure. But as you think about this concept of answered prayers, 
we don't judge the answer to prayers the same way that we would, like trying to get a scientific conclusion. We judge it based on, did I ask and did God give? Right? And the same way that um, Chandra bought a Christmas tree yesterday, and she asked me to take it out of the car into the house, and I did it. She didn't say, well, I didn't really have to ask her. Well, did you really take it out because I asked, or did you just do that because you were not? No. She linked the two, and she said, we have a relationship. I asked, and you did. You answered the request that I had. And when it comes to God, it's the same thing. We don't have to sit back and say, well, did God really do that? Yes. God answers prayer, and Jesus invites us to come and to ask for all of these things. So what do we do? I think that what this prayer shows us is that God is concerned about all of our lives. Every bit of it. From the physical provision that we need to the spiritual pitfalls that are waiting around the corner to the things that we know are going to trip us up. And he encourages us to come to him proactively, especially when we're sober and ask for him right now to do the things that we know that when we find ourselves in the midst of temptation, we won't have the strength to stand up against. He invites us to to do that right now. Charles Spurgeon says this, cast your troubles where you have cast your sin. You have cast your sins into the depths of a sea. There cast your troubles also. Never keep a trouble half an hour on your own mind before you tell it to your father. As soon as the trouble comes, quit. The first thing, tell it to him. Remember that the longer that you delay telling your trouble to God, the more your peace will be impaired. The longer the frost lasts, the more likely that the ponds will be frozen. The confidence that we have is that We're only asking God to do the very things that he already wants to do. How much incentive do you have, do you need to do something that you already want to do, but somebody asked you to do? If I go to my nephew and say, hey, do you want a piece of cake? He throws out, please, cake, exclamation mark, cake, cake. He, you need little incentive to do what you already want to do. The beauty about all of this is everything that we see in here, God already wants to do it. And he invites us just to ask. So all that you need to do is fill in the details. It doesn't take long. Create space, carve out that space in your life. When our access to something is constricted, we tend to be more intentional with the way that we use things. If you only knew you had 15 minutes with somebody and they had the power of your life or death in their hands, you would make the best use of that time. If you knew that you could come to them at any point in time, you tend to be a little more lazy with your time. I want you to know 
God has provided us limitless access to him, not to make us lazy, but because there is an unlimited amount of things that we need his help on and that we need to talk to him about. And he's invited us in to talk about every one of those things. And not just your thing, but somebody else's. The beauty of prayer is there's so many people in this world, there's so many friends that we have that need help, but your ability to help them is constrained by their permission. Hey, I really want to make sure that you and her uh, don't have beef anymore. But I need your permission to move on. Hey, I really want to help out with this. Ah, but I need you to give me the green light. Do you know what prayer does? You don't need anybody's permission. And you can spend time and pray and go to a God that actually changes things. Don't keep your troubles any longer than you have to. And don't let your loved ones keep theirs any longer than you have to. Anytime that you hear a problem, let your stimulus be to hurl up a prayer towards God. Hear a problem, hurl a prayer. Hear a problem, hurl a prayer. Hear a problem, hurl a prayer. It keeps you from feeling as if you have to be the one to take care of all of the needs. It keeps you from putting your foot in your mouth. It keeps you from providing somebody with help that they didn't ask for and they really didn't need. But do you know what it does for us and for for them? It reminds us that our father is just as concerned with my needs as he is with theirs. That our father has been so kind as not just to invite us to prayer, but to make sure that his instructions were such that you and I would be forced to include other people in their prayers, especially when they're not strong enough to pray for themselves. Our Father invites us to pray. And my prayer is that that would be a pillar that's a part of this church that forces God's work to be done, not just here in the West End, but in the lives of us here in this room and all that we touch long after we get off the stage preaching long after this church is is done with the purposes that God has laid out for it long after you and I are breathing here on this earth God invites us to pray let's take full advantage of it let's pray right now yeah father we uh, we thank you that you've promised your presence for us father um, we tend to think that It's the presence of the possessions that we lack that will give us the peace that we need, Father. Help us to be reminded of the fact that it's it's not those things, Father. You give us very simple and ordinary things to pray about, Father. But they cover the gamut of all of our lives from relational conflict and struggle and strife, Father, to the needs that we have, Lord. I pray that we would be those that take you at your word and believe that you are our Father, Lord. Help us to be those that constantly extend the same grace that you've provided to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.